Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Cliff Notes on the Global Manufacturing Picture. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host of this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. For the years that I have been on the air, we have been talking with many great guests about the economic role of manufacturing. It's considerable tentacles within the domestic and the global economies. But as these years of crisis that we're still enduring have made it painfully apparent, the manufacturing sector plays a big role in the security picture of the United States. So today, I want to talk about the intersection between manufacturing policy and national security policy. And then as we go on into the conversation, I'm going to look ahead. We're trying to get past this period and I want to talk about the structural issues that are going to make, uh, that make uh, a difference to the competitiveness of the manufacturing sector in the future. There aren't many people you can have that conversation with, which is why I am thrilled to be joined by my distinguished guest today. Eric Tuning is a partner in McKinsey & Company's Advanced Industries Practice with a focus being on aerospace and defense companies and investors. He has two decades of experience advising decision makers in national security markets and supports clients in the areas of growth strategy, strategic due diligence, M&A advisory, corporate portfolio management, and strategy-based transformation. While in government, Eric was the chief of staff to three different acting and confirmed United States Secretaries of Defense. In this role, he led the Secretary's executive team working across the military services, joint staff, combatant commanders, and senior civilian political appointees. He also provided counsel advice to the Secretary on all matters concerning the department. Prior to serving as the Chief of Staff, Eric was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. In this capacity, he was the Principal Advisor for analyzing the capabilities, policies, and overall health of the defense industrial base. He represented DOD on the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, as well as the Hart-Scott-Rodino Antitrust Reviews. He also led the federal government-wide 2018 review on the U.S. defense industrial base. A former U.S. Army military intelligence officer, he is a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Prior to his military service, Eric was an investment banker at Morgan Stanley, where he focused on corporate finance, mergers and acquisitions in the global industrial sector. Eric's analysis of foreign policy military strategy, and the defense industrial base have been featured in a variety of national media outlets, including American Interests, Brookings, Defense News, Financial Times, Military Review, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and War on the Rocks. He has testified before the U.S. Congress three times. Eric received an MBA from the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia, where he was recognized as a Sherman Scholar. He also earned an MA in International Relations and a BA with honors for the University of Chicago. He is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Eric, welcome to the show. 
No, that's terrific. Cliff, thank you so much, and it's great to have your listeners on a topic that, you know, I care deeply about, I know you care about, and, and they do as well, and it, this is a great, a great way to, to spend some time together. Thank you, and let me start off with the question that I know that our listening audience is most eager for me to ask you. In your capacity as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy, you advise on issues at the intersection of industrial policy and defense policy. So currently, are the hot-button concerns in this sphere? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and, and as you indicated in, in the front, there's a growing nexus between the intersection between manufacturing and national security. Um, if I take a step back, you know, the mission of the Pentagon's Industrial Policy Office is to ensure a robust, secure, resilient, and innovative industrial base for the Department of Defense in an era of great power competition. So let's explore each of those elements, robust. Well, in the context of a conflict with a near-peer adversary, Robust means that you've got sufficient industrial capacity to support our most taxing war plan, both in terms of replacement of combat losses, but also mobilization. And you can do that in a time that's relevant for execution of the plan. Um, the second element of that mission statement, secure. Um, is that industrial base protected? Uh, are the facilities physically secure? Is the intellectual property protected, both the government-owned intellectual property as well as the company's intellectual property? Are the appropriate cybersecurity measures in place, not just in the folks that the department's contracting with directly, but throughout the supply chain? Um, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, I think, is an important reminder for all of us of the cascading effects of where one incident is in a supply chain can have downstream impacts. You know, the third element of that mission, resilient, you know, are, what are the vulnerabilities in, in, the, in the industrial base, and then do we have the appropriate level of re redundancy, right? And a big challenge here, and this is a challenge for industrial prizes anywhere, is supply chain visibility into the end tier of the supply chain um, and recognizing that that supply chain visibility can't just be a snapshot in time because supply chains are dynamic. You've got to be able to monitor that dynamically and adjust and build, re build resiliency where you've got vulnerability. And then finally, innovate. We never want to send our people into a fair fight. We always want them to have technological advantage on the battlefield. And so the question here is, are we accessing the sources of innovation in our society to ensure our best technology is in the hands of our warfighters when and how they need it? And here you, you deal with concerns like bridging the valley of death between R&D and commercialization, as well as accessing talent in places like Silicon Valley um, to fully ensure we're bringing the best of the national security innovation base uh, to our warfighters. In the early months of the pandemic, going back to a year that most of us would rather forget, the U.S. experienced supply issues with regard to such critical items as personal protective equipment and even pharmaceuticals. What, what do we do about that? What steps need yeah. to be taken to alleviate these vulnerabilities? Sure. Well, first, I think we need to recognize the importance of our strategic national stockpile and make sure we're investing in it. Um, and, and making sure we're investing in it when we, when we don't think we need it, right? I, I like to think of that as, as a, the strategic national stockpile, or really it's our, it's our country's safety stock for national health care products. Um, I think second, 
you know, the government needs to maintain the authorities necessary to quickly act and inject targeted capital to expand industrial capacity. Uh, and I think this is where folks heard about probably the Defense Production Act for the first time, which is an authority that's been on the books since the 1950s, but uh, it has an important role for helping the government, um, you know, inter interact with the economy in times of crisis. And then third, I think there needs to be a debate about our confidence to access critical items like PPE and pharmaceuticals from the international market in a time of crisis. And then having a discussion about is it, does it make sense or not to have some local content requirements in place. Uh, there are obviously pros and cons to both sides of that discussion, um, but I think it's a debate we probably should have. And then finally, irrespective of where we come out on that debate, you know, the no regrets move here is for us to focus on domestic manufacturing competitiveness. What do we need to do to make sure U.S. manufacturing competitiveness is at the forefront of both U.S. business and policymakers? All right, let's, let's bring it up to the present now. And in recent months, supply chain disruptions have mounted to the point where they are actually threatening what could otherwise be a very strong U.S. manufacturing rebound. Apart from the unique supply challenges that we understand are caused by very dramatic pandemic-induced cyclical swings, what's the real problem here? What are the core structural failures behind current supply chain troubles? Yeah, and I, I tend to think of the supply chain trouble or supply chain risk is really a function of two things. One, it's a function of vulnerability, right? So what's the characteristics of that supply chain? And, and we all know certain supply chains are, are unique that makes it vulnerable to a disruption or a shock, right? Is it the, the fact that the, dis, that the supply chain tends to be very long, transposes across multiple geographies, you know, it's dependent on a handful of very small suppliers, um, it's reliant on, 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 on potential um, um, geographic bottlenecks or capacity bottlenecks in the system. You know, there's a range of specific vulnerabilities, but I think this, that, that at a high level, it's like, what's the, what, what is the vulnerability? And then the other, the other element here is the shock, right? The occurrence of the event that could result in a negative impact on the supply chain. As, and, and different shocks will have different impacts. And as you indicated, you know, the pandemic was itself a shock, but, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we experienced other shocks. Where, where I tend to go with this type of thinking is, I, I think back to the 13806 report that you had identified, where we looked in detail at the, at the health of the U.S. defense industrial base. And it was actually like the first time where we had a, a whole government approach examining that. And we really came across five structural issues that impacted uh, from a DOD viewpoint. The first was the defense budget instability and the, the, the changes in the defense budget. Um, and what I'm talking about here isn't necessarily, you know, the top line of the defense budget. You have to go below that. You have to look about how the budgets get impacted around procurement of, of specific types of capability and how shifts in that over time um, impact the health of the sector providing that set of specialized equipment, right? The, the, the health of the submarine industrial base is separate from the health of our tactical fighter aircraft industrial base. Uh, second was a recognition in the, that we've experienced a decline of U.S. manufacturing and, and that the, the, the U.S. manufacturing base, um, particularly when you get into the sub-tier of our defense industrial base, is, 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 is really the roots of our, of, our, of our defense ecosystem. And, and as the general U.S. manufacturing sector has declined, and, and, and we're probably going to talk more about that here later on, um, it's had an adverse impact on the ability for the department to, 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 to access manufacturing capabilities here in the States. Um, the third thing was the 
government business practices, and, and the reality is the government's very hard to do business with, and that uh, there are you know perverse outcomes associated with 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 government procurement decisions, and so there's a lot that the government can do to help streamline and make that more effective. Uh, the fourth thing that we talked about structurally was the industrial policies of competitor nations and the impact that that's had on, on, our, on our manufacturing sector. And then finally, diminishing U.S. STEM and trade skills. Um, you know, a lot of emphasis is done on STEM, as it should be, but we also need to pay attention to the, the, to the impact of our trade skills, the importance of apprenticeship programs, um, and addressing those both. And so, you know, these five structural issues we, we saw clearly have an impact on the defense industrial base. And, and, and what, I, what, what I believe is that the, the DOD issues are a microcosm of the challenges we are seeing more broadly um, in our manufacturing sector today. The chatter keeps centering around U.S. supply chain problems, but let me ask, do you think that supply chain reform efforts need to be a collaboration among countries, given the, uh, the, the multi-country aspects of many um, supply chains? Can, can one country really go at this alone? No, but I, I do think it needs to be a collaboration. Um, now, I think you may see increased regionalization of supply chains. Um, um, and, 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 and when we look at sort of the U.S. economy uh, relative to, say, um, you know, other advanced economies like in China or Japan or in Europe, uh, the, 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 the North American ecosystem, particularly the U.S. ecosystem, is actually less regionalized than what we see in Asia and Europe. And so I think there's room for increased regionalization, particularly in the U.S. Um, I, I think the challenge here really comes down to, you know, you can't go it alone across the board. Are there particular areas where you want to make sure you've got a, a specific domestic source of supply? You know, what are those critical things that you want to be able to do here potentially? And, 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 and I do think that that should be a national conversation. And then as you work on collaboration, um, you know, what's the role of the, the market in determining how to do that versus governments? And how will governments set the rules of the game to inform how the markets finally, finally rest on that um, kind of new cross-border uh, trade ecosystem, and, and 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 you know that's something I think we're seeing actively playing out now um, in the headlines. Let's shift gears a little bit, and now look more broadly at the future of U.S. manufacturing. Mm -hmm. In a recent McKinsey Global Institute report, you listed a number of ways in which manufacturing punches above its weight. One of them is in the area of productivity growth. But U.S. manufacturing productivity performance has been especially weak really since the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Two related questions. First of all, why is that? What is the problem with productivity? And second of all, will U.S. manufacturing maintain its position as a productivity growth leader for the U.S. economy? Yeah, no, it's a great question and an important one. Um, so, you know, manufacturing has become less profitable everywhere as low-return producers have expanded capacity. You know, globally what we're seeing now is the average profit for a dollar of capital investment has fallen by 80% over the past two decades. And these falling returns make manufacturing investment uh, look even less attractive for U.S. investors and companies, right? And so as a result, what we've seen is manufacturers are deferring capital investments. And this inability to invest in equipment and technologies has made particularly small and medium enterprises in the U.S. manufacturing ecosystem uh, significantly less productive. 
than what they were what they have been in the past. And so to turn that picture around, we need to make sure capital is making it to our small and medium enterprises. So they've got the, 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 the ability to make investments in, in digital 4.0 technologies, as well as make investments in their workforce, uh, particularly around those sets of specialized skills that they need uh, to be competitive globally in the future. Uh, that, that's really the one-two punch we need. It, it's making sure capital is making it to our SMEs and then making sure we're, we're getting the workforce in place to make the most of advanced manufacturing technologies. You note in a recent article in Industry Today that the U.S. manufacturing global share has fallen fairly significantly from 25 to 17 percent since 1997. Now, let me ask, does, does that reflect an absolute decline for the United States, or is it a relative decline generated by the rise of manufacturing, the natural rise of manufacturing in emerging market countries? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a relative decline. So there's been modest growth in U.S. manufacturing in terms of absolute output. I think it's been about 1.2% per year as measured by the Federal Reserve's production index. Um, but I think the headline issue here is that the nation's share of global manufacturing has fallen, um, as you indicated, from about 25% in 1997 to 17% in 2019. Now, if, if, if you believe, like I do, that manufacturing creates positive externalities for the rest of the economy, the loss of that share means those benefits are accruing somewhere else. And, and, and I think that ultimately is the problem here, is how do we make sure the U.S. continues to maintain its fair share of global manufacturing output, um, not just because manufacturing for the sake of manufacturing is important, but because of all the positive externalities associated with manufacturing. Um, and that, 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 in my mind, is, is the real underlying issue here. One thing that is a constant topic of discussion among manufacturing leaders, manufacturing executives, is the workforce. You've written that private companies should be able to, quote, shoulder their own workforce training. And I found that to be interesting. And so let me ask you, what do you see as the role for the education system and for governments in developing the competitive manufacturing workforce that we need? Yeah. You know, and I think with my comments earlier, it's in the private sector's enlightened self-interest <laughs> to focus on human capital, right, and to make sure that their workforce is a competitive advantage for them. Um, but clearly government has a role to play here. And, and the example that I think has worked out really well um, is what the, the Department of Defense has done working with industry on the submarine industrial base, right? And so if you think about sort of the manufacturer of, of nuclear submarines, um, there's a lot of really exquisite skills um, that go into place. Um, you know, the demand for that is driven by what the U.S. Department of Defense is going to buy. So you've got some transparency into what requirements are. And there's a handful of, of, of prime suppliers, too, in this case, that, that, that make make our submarines. So what that, that relatively small ecosystem has done is they've gotten together and they said, all right, if we're going to support uh, the Navy's shipbuilding plan going out into the future for submarines, here and as we have our own workforce that's beginning to retire, here are the, here are the number of workers we need, here are the types of skills we need, the number of welders, machinists, fitters, electricians, QA technicians. Oh, by the way, while we're making digital investments in, in new manufacturing technologies, and, and we're going to go, and we're going to go engage with community colleges, trade skills programs, underrepresented portions of our economy, 
and we're going to train them. We're going to train them in these skills through apprenticeship programs. Uh, the Department of Defense has made investments um, in this area. Uh, the, the, the companies themselves, General Dynamics and Huntington Ingalls, have made investments in these areas, and, and, and they're managing that industrial base um, very collaboratively as it relates to workforce and workforce talent. And, and, and I think that's, that's a really good example of where, and there's some things unique about that environment that, that's enabled it to be successful, but I think it's a good example of where you can get government, the private sector, and, and our educational system to work together um, for the variety of jobs that are needed in manufacturing. Um, and, um, you know, I think we're all very bullish on, on, on those programs being successful. Let's get more broadly to reform efforts. Yeah. You've written that past efforts to strengthen U.S. manufacturing have been, quote-unquote, fragmented. What did you mean by this? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, again, I'll, I'll just fall back on my DOD example. Um, you know, when I, when I was at the department, you know, it was clear to me that the, the DOD had five really large levers <laughs> that you could use to impact the U.S. manufacturing sector. Um, you know, the first was acquisition policy, right? Putting in place the rules for how DOD buys things, right? And these rules are, are important because they impact the economics of dealing with the department in terms of, you know, is something going to be a firm fixed fee contract versus something cost plus? If it's cost plus, what's the margin associated with it? Um, it also impacts the business models that, that one can have in, in working with, with DOD. Um, it impacts the attractiveness of the department as a customer. But also importantly, it also impacts the standards, right, around that the products are developed around and, and, and new technologies can be developed around, something like 3D additive manufacturing, for example. Um, and so how we created acquisition policy was an important lever, but it was only one lever, right? I think the second thing that was really important were the discrete procurement decisions that we made. What is it that we're buying? And, 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 and that's important because it sends the demand signal to the market to organize and create capacity around certain capabilities uh, that we think are going to be important going forward. You know, the third area was where the department decided to make direct investments. You know, DOD is one of the largest um, R&D um, providers in, in, in the U.S. economy, and, 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 and the range of where DOD directs that investment is very important. Um, I think the fourth element of this was the regulatory review of mergers, whether that was through CFIUS, uh, screening foreign direct investment in the United States, or uh, working with the FTC and the Justice Department on antitrust issues. And then finally, export controls, uh, you know, working with the Commerce Department on the types of technologies that should get control, controlled or shouldn't be controlled, right? And obviously, export controls have an impact on, on, on U.S. manufacturing business cases. And so, you know, what, I, what my observation was, you would often find the health of the manufacturing sector taken in the context of one of the levers, <laughs> but very rarely did you did you did you see people sort of think holistically and how you could get all five levers working consistently around a, a particular outcome. And I think a really good example here is the the discussion around rare earths, right? So there's a lot of topic about what we need to do to secure uh, the ability for the U.S. to access processed rare earths. Um, China is responsible for about 8% of the world's market and controls it through export quotas. Um, but, you know, when you, when, you, when you think about the five different levers I described, not one lever in and of itself will, will help create a rare earth industry here in the United States, right? The department may make direct investments where they'll subsidize the construction of a, of a, of a, of a processing capability here in the U.S., but just creating sort of the, the processing capability in and of itself doesn't mean you'll have a, an enduring marketplace because, you know, the, the pricing of a subscale 
quotas or sorry producing something at subscale won't won't compete in an open market with with what the Chinese producers can do. So you know you need to bring other levels into place, right? Do you need to potentially put in place offtake agreements? So you're also addressing the demand side of that, or working to acquisition policy, certain local content requirements around the use of processed rares here in the United States. So there's demand for that capability, and so and so I think that's the example of where. You know, you've got a topic where there seems to be broad, broad sort of commitment or broad appreciation for the need to do something, but one lever in and of itself won't address the issue. You've got to work across multiple levers to to, to create the right outcome. Final question for Eric Tuning. Eric, you and your colleagues at the McKinsey Global Institute have put forth a plan for U.S. manufacturing revitalization. I'm going to ask you to please describe the broad outlines of that plan. Yeah, no, it's great, uh, and really, it comes down to, you know, increasing American competitiveness, um, and and there are five objectives for for how we think we should go about doing that. You know, the first is um, capturing growth from trade shifts. You know, the McKinsey Global Institute's estimated that over the next five years, up to four and a half trillion dollars in trade flows could shift because of both economic and non-economic factors, right? And so that new trade activity is going to go somewhere. Um, you know, how do we make sure it's coming to the United States so that, you know, U.S. manufacturers are benefiting from that shift in global trade? Not all of it, obviously, will come here, but, you know, how do we make sure we get more than our first share? The second piece is ensuring access to capital, right? We talked about U.S. investor expectations and the impact that that's had on manufacturing as investor expectations have moved away from manufacturing business models. How do we make sure that we're getting the right, manuf right, right capital to the right manufacturers within our, within our small and medium enterprise um, ecosystem in particular? You know, the third element is adoption of industry 4.0 technologies, right? In order to boost productivity, American manufacturers need to embrace the digitally enabled technologies, processes, and business models. Uh, right now, we're behind. When you look at the World Economic Forum Global Lighthouse Project, um, they've got about 69 global lighthouses. Only seven of those are operating in the United States. Uh, by comparison, 20 are in China. Uh, I think the fourth element of that is how do we foster a resilient supplier ecosystem? Uh, you know, we note that firms thrive in ecosystems surrounded by suppliers and research institutions. Um, so how can we get business leaders at the federal, state, and local government level working together for a holistic approach to, 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 to create the, 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 the ecosystems um, that, that we know are more resilient and that drive uh, manufacturing outcomes, particularly as it relates to the development of technical innovation? And then finally, uh, focusing on developing people, not just saving jobs, right? As production technology changes, so too must the workforce. And uh, we, we've got to make sure we're investing in our people um, for the jobs of the future, not, not trying to save roles that, that, that are just aren't, aren't necessarily coming back. And so that, that's the, the five, at the highest level, the five-part five plan that we've, uh, we've put together in, in, in our research. Eric Tuning, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's my, my pleasure, Cliff, and uh, it's great being able to share this time with you, and I appreciate the interest from all your listeners. And I'd also like to say thank you for your service. Oh, it's my pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time at another episode of Cliff Notes on the Global Manufacturing Picture.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.